0: Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. We've all made some bad choices in life. I know I have. Like starting a restaurant in 2006 based on Korean burritos. But this isn't about me. It's about you. Don't make where you play fantasy football a bad life decision. Play Yahoo Fantasy Football. Yahoo offers up free expert advice. It has the best player experience. And they'll never delete your league history like other apps. Yahoo also has all kinds of fantasy games. Like the new best ball, just draft and you're done. No trades, no waivers, no drama all season. Yahoo is the number one rated app by the FSGA, and it's my fantasy football league of choice. Make better choices, choose Yahoo Fantasy Football. And now, the Dave Chang Show. To the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Big shout out to Yola Tango for the intro music, one of my favorite bands of all time. This week, we have author, journalist, food critic, Jeff Gordonier, who wrote a book called Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. Not me. He's talking about Rene Redzepi and the Tima Noma. But before we get into that conversation, I want to do a very quick, my opinion as fact, I don't think anyone should go to cooking school anymore. And I'm sure this is going to get me a lot of trouble, but I've talked about it before and I'm only doubling down on it. And I'm really just talking about people that want to go to cooking school so they can get a job working in restaurants, right? Like there are many different ways and maybe a culinary degree is important to work in the other ways you can work with food and be paid, right? Whether it's food stylist, private chef, Operations, cafeteria, I don't know, but I'm specifically talking about working in restaurants. I just don't think it's necessary anymore because there's so much information out there, particularly with the internet. Lastly, I think that if you are thinking about going to cooking school, you should, number one, before you enter, go make sure you can go to a state university or a university or college that is affordable. And most state schools have affordable in-state tuition. And the great thing about the democratization of food is that almost every city or town in America has a really great restaurant. And like most college kids, you can work part-time and still go to school. And the difference is and why I think it's almost impossible to tell me that I'm fucking wrong. If you go to college, you can learn art history, philosophy, English, architecture, dance, electrical engineering, biochemistry, macrobiology, physics, you name it. All of these things are so important. Anything liberal arts or anything that's like useful skill set is going to be very, very fruitful for you down the road because it's going to teach you how to critically think. But most importantly, and lastly, I think that the reason why you shouldn't go to cooking school is in my opinion- And I would guess that the attrition rate or failure rate for cooking school graduates after five years of graduation, whether it's a six-month, two-year, four-year program, is over 95%. That is honestly, I believe, a pretty accurate number. And when you apply to cooking schools, they're going to tell you that this is going to open your doors to different horizons, cooking, blah, 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 that like you have to go, you don't have to go. Number one. And number two, I don't know of any restaurant that's not hired someone because they did not have a cooking school degree. That's ridiculous. If you want to actually see if working in restaurants is for you, get a fucking job washing dishes. If you like washing dishes, it's probably the right industry for you. I assure you that. But the thing is, this I now see too many kids not kids, people that were obviously younger, but they focus all their efforts in learning how to cook, and now they're in their late 20s or mid-30s. And I don't have any problem with someone that wants to get out of this profession because it's so fucking hard. What I do have a problem with is that people that are saddled with massive debt, sometimes these culinary schools are 50,000 plus, not including living expenses. It's going to be very hard for you to pay that loan off, that student debt. And have a ability to pay rent and not, I mean, it's just fucking impossible, man. That's very hard. And there's no way anyone can tell me that the cost-benefit ratio is worth it. When you can go to a school, learn about history or, again, like the sciences, and then on your part-time job, learn under a great chef that works in your neighborhood— like Austin, basically any California city. Like, I, and you name a city, there's a great chef there that will teach you so much about cooking. And it's a good entry point. You don't have to work at that restaurant forever, but it certainly will open your doors to other kinds of jobs and other cities. And I would rather people that decide to leave the culinary profession in restaurants Let's just say you're 34, 35 years old, and you're like, you're done. I don't want to do this anymore. But at the age of 18, you went to the CIA or Johnson & Wales or whatever, and you did a two-, four-year program. You spent your life past 12, 13 years working in restaurants, and you have no other skill set other than working in restaurants. It's really hard to career change. Reverse career change is fucking hard. We always talk about career changers from working in some kind of desk job into the profession. But more and more people I see are career-changing from being a cook to going to some kind of desk job because it's better for their life and so on and so forth and great for them. But they're woefully unprepared because they have no training or no understanding of anything else other than cooking. And I really hate seeing that. And I think that people need to be better prepared And we need to be better preparing the next generation of cooks and chefs with wide eyes at the reality of what the fuck this profession means to them. We are promoting the wrong fucking things. And what's at the end of the rainbow is not oftentimes pretty. And we need to prepare cooks that don't want to cook anymore because it's too fucking hard. If they want to go and be an accountant or work as a gardener or become a potter or whatever... Or if they want to, you know, like, I I literally tell people this question. I was like, you should study computer science or engineering and minor in, like, philosophy and work part-time at a great restaurant. Like, if I, I would love to have gone to Berkeley and worked at Chez Panisse and then, you know, studied some cool shit. And I'd be much better prepared than I went to just cooking school anyway. I can talk forever about the subject. I really would like to talk more about it with a group of chefs and maybe somebody from cooking school. That would be a good podcast. If somebody from cooking school wants to have a healthy debate as to the fucking optics of what cooking school offers, let's go. Let's do this because I think it's a fucking sham. I really do. And I think it should go under congressional review because if the data really is as bad as I say, you know what? This is a much larger story. Anyway, let's table this. Let's get into this conversation with Jeff Gordonier. I've talked too much about this. And in this podcast, I talk too much again, but Jeff's a journalist and he is usually asking the questions. So I get caught up answering a lot of fucking questions. Anyway, I'm all worked up now. This is what cooking school does to me for fuck's sake. I get so pissed off. Here you go. Here's Jeff Gordonier.
1: You know, I'm fighting a cold right now. I'm losing my voice. I'm my book comes out today. I'm hus- I it, it, it's, And you're about to go on a long tour. I'm about book tour. to go on this book tour. I'm like, do I have pneumonia? I got to get antibiotics. I I mean I'm not whining. I'm very blessed. I'm like privileged to be in this position. But but the reality as with any of us, anyone in the world is complex. It's it's complicated. So, um I think people see this as oh, well you just like got to go to Noma 7 times. Lucky you. It's like, well there are, some, there are some wrinkles, but anyway, I was going to ask you questions. Gina. Okay, shoot. When did you first eat at Noma? 2006. Oh, very 2005, early.
0: 2006.
1: Um, what was your first experience like?
0: Well, the first experience with Rene was he was staying over at Wiley Dufresne's apartment, and him and Nadine came over and they ate at Sambar. 2005? Oh.
1: Well, that was very early. Really early on. Yeah. So,
0: Renee and I have been very close for a long time. And did you hit
1: it off that, at that moment?
0: We really hit it off when we did an event. Uh, we cooked dinner in Deauville, France at the Omnivore. Oh, cool. And I saw Renee do the greatest demo I've ever seen. And that's when I was like, oh, this guy's working on a whole nother level. Really? Uh, we cooked family meal together that night, and we were became fast friends ever since. So that was a long time ago. Wow. And I ate at uh, yeah, two thousand six when um, it was really empty. I think one one time I was maybe like three other people were in the dining room.
1: The original Noma, <laughs> yeah. Didn't they call it the stinky whale or the dead? Like there were all these these yeah. terms for seal it. fuckers. Yeah, I mean Renee has told me that it was often empty in the beginning. It was not busy. <laughs> it really It's hard to imagine. Crazy.
0: Yeah, and I really think about it fondly. You talk about it in your book about uh, it's sort of like a band, right? Before yeah. they become famous. And I have a lot of wonderful nostalgia about those moments and the people that were there. Many of them are still at NOMA, and mm. uh, you wrote a book
1: about it. Well, I did. I did. I mean, I think that's one of the most interesting parts because I didn't go to NOMA in those very early days. And I feel like somebody who— Got hip to REM, you know, around the time of Automatic for the People or something. Like, you were listening to REM during Murmur and Reckoning in those early days, it sounds like, if we're using that as a metaphor for NOMA. And I wish I could go back and taste some of those early dishes, langoustine on a hot rock, et cetera. But as we know, Rene doesn't repeat himself
0: <laughs> at all. No, no, not anymore. And uh, yeah, I talked about it a lot. You have a chapter at that in the book where it, that's discussed, and... Um, you
1: know, what I, was it about those early dishes that was so elementally satisfying?
0: Before that, it was like I, Wiley Dufresne doesn't get enough credit for many things, and he somewhat he's a, almost like a culinary Prometheus, right? He stole the fire from Europe to give it to everyone else, and he's the first person in America to know anything about Nama and to really like befriend Renee, ah. and a lot of Renee's pastry chefs and culinary team came from yes. WD fifty, and. They were part of the the Jelinas, the original Jelenas team. And mm-hmm. a lot of those dishes, they did a Jelinas that was based on the muskox tartar. Right. And no one even knows what a muskox is. And, and it was right around when I think Rene was trying to figure out, not figure out his voice, but the beginning, why I love it was, it was... Like when Picasso just made his like first like cubist painting or something yeah. like that. You could almost like think about it where that where he was like, Wait, I gotta stop. I gotta paint black and white. I gotta figure out what exactly Scandinavian food can be. Mm-hmm. And I I can't do it on a trajectory that's French mm-hmm. or or European. And I can take a lot of my understandings of Ferran and Thomas Keller and whether people realize or not. Rene is a fantastic cook. He just has great flow in the kitchen and Mm -hmm. his movements are just spectacular. And that sounds funny, but if you see someone on the line and the way he was just forcing dishes, not forcing, they were just done in a way that were elemental and beautiful and different than I'd ever seen. His aesthetic
1: is so different. Like, I mean, what do you say to people? I'm so much more comfortable in this role of asking questions. Mm. As you can see, I'm like reverting to my default mode. I'm more interested in what you have to say because we've never had this deep no, conversation no. about it. But like when you confront people who are NOMA skeptics, which I do all the time and I understand it, they'll say, why does this guy get all this attention? Why does this restaurant get all this freaking attention? What do you say to them?
0: Rene, I mean, again, because he's gotten so much attention in the whole team of NOMA, he was the first person to create a culinary identity that never existed before. Right. And that scratch, is, from scratch. is like an yeah. insane, it's so crazy to think about. Yeah. A lot of these, whether he invented something new, that's not the point, but it's a lot like, one of the reasons we've been getting like our critics on is because he was the first person to like create food juxtaposed in a way that had never been done before. Mm-hmm. And you know, that is important when people are critical of its
1: importance. That's interesting. <laughs> right. The criticism tells you something. Yeah. 100%. Yeah.
0: It's like the, when the tortoise wins the race, everyone's like, that guy's not fast. Like, yeah. how the, that's not the best. Right. But it is the best because it fundamentally altered and pushed our understanding of what food could be because it was no longer French. It was no longer ferran It was one generation removed from ferran and Elbuyi because at that time, everyone in 2004 to 2008, everyone was doing a facsimile. Of Ferran food. Oh, absolutely. And the only one that was doing it different was probably Heston, if you were going to do something modern. The other end of that spectrum was Passard. Mm -hmm. And I think what Rene did was he synthesized it in a way that had, it was like a Venn diagram with all these different influences of his life. Was Keller, Ferran, Marc Verrat, Michel Bra, Mm. you name it. But it was close, but not like that. It was Mm -hmm. ultimately nothing like any of them. Right.
1: But it took from everywhere. I feel like new Nordic is a term that does it a disservice.
0: Like molecular gastronomy.
1: Right. I mean, because really what it is is like nature boy cooking. It's like new naturalism. You know, it's like pushing nature in all these dis- different directions with foraging, with fermentation, with drying. But that had
0: been done before.
1: Not to this done... degree, it seems. I mean, sort of like you can like look back Patience Gray, Edna Lewis. There's a lot of people, Ewell Gibbons, a lot of people talked about foraging for Decades, right. centuries, and Marc like, Leroy
0: and Michel Bra probably really cemented the idea of foraging. And again, to a lesser degree, Pissard, because his was more about farming, and then yeah. transferring that to the plate. But I think what Rene did differently, he modernized it in a way mm-hmm. because of his understanding of you know what he learned working with Keller and obviously mm-hmm. with Ferran, and no one had actually figured out how to to thread that needle. Yes. So it wasn't just French foraging, and it wasn't Not at just all, Scandinavian. Yeah. And I think we still need more time to actually figure out what it was because what he's done in the beginning years of Noma is fundamentally different than what he's doing now. It was much more raw and jagged. Interesting. And I still think of it as completely beautiful because there's a level of kind of a success when you haven't reached it, where you're really just taking some moonshots. And that's what it was. It was beautiful because it was dangerous.
1: It wasn't overproduced. He didn't bring in the big-name producer for the later albums. I didn't know what
0: was working yet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, And that, to
0: me, is always the most amazing part when you look at anything creative.
1: Did you ever have any dishes at Noma that you you disliked or maybe loathed? I still hate the insects. You do? Oh, yeah. I don't like them. He knows You're just not into the bugs.
0: I'm not into the bugs. Any of them? No. I I will eat them when there is nothing and it's Armageddon.
1: (laughs) Well, any minute now, then. I think grasshoppers are good. I you know, can't. Chapolinas that I've had in Oaxaca. And I, I think they're quite delicious. I still
0: can't do it, even though it's the same as like, like a shrimp. I, I understand. But uh, yeah, it's it just, they became family. And just Momofuku and Noma and the whole team there, it's, there's been a lot of, um, a, a strong relationship. Yeah. It's weird. Like, I've been in that restaurant a lot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I spent a lot of time How many times messes. have you eaten there? I don't know.
0: Maybe every year since 2006. So what, wow. so 13? maybe 15 times, maybe yeah.
1: more. I don't even know. Did you have the wild game menu?
0: I, that's the one menu I did not have. I had yeah, the I the eaten. vegetarian and the and the seafood menu. And, uh, you know, the, the current iteration of NOMA is a very different thing. Wouldn't you agree?
1: That's one reason I wanted to write a book about right. it because I think it's constant evolution is fascinating. I think it would be fascinating, not just to people who obsess over food, but, you know, people in the business world, people in uh, the art world, um, this mantra, this manifesto of change, I think is probably applicable to our personal lives, our professional lives. You know, my father, who's from the business world, said he thinks there's a lot of kind of lessons in the book for the business world in, in terms of Rene's willingness to blow things up, you know, if it's not working or if he's grown bored with it. I think that, you know, I just had the plant kingdom menu and the, the most recent one, I was over there in uh, June and There's a whole mold course. You know, there's three courses where they have inoculated asparagus and this like egg yolk with mold. So it's covered with, you know, kind of white fur, almost like like a camembert or something. Um, I like the asparagus part of it, but the the mold pie was a little much for me. I'll tell you. It was, was, I mean, that's one thing I like about Noma. It's like, I will go there and I will experience something new every time.
0: But now I feel the menu is more... Provocative.
1: More provocative than ever before. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it's a little bit more zero fucks. Um, It seems to be. We're going to do it because we want to do it. Yeah. And do you like that or not? Three menus a year, it's tough. It's so hard. And that's my only concern. I worry about how they can do that. Yeah. It's so hard. And maybe it's, and according to Ray, maybe it's not like it'll change in the future because it's supposed to be an open ended restaurant. My only concern of that is that, and I would say that, and I was talking to someone, I think it was Petrini, the last meal I had, the seafood menu, I thought was incredibly brilliant because there's so much, you need footnotes because there's so many references to dishes that they've done in the past. Oh yeah, interesting. Um, it's a lot. There's I feel lot.
1: like the seafood menus are hard to top because the quality of the seafood is so high there and they're, they're allowing the simplicity of the ingredients to shine through. They'll add a little, you know, drop of this fermented sauce from David Zilber and his team or whatnot. But a lot of times the mussels, the scallops, the clams, et cetera, were presented with such radiant simplicity. I love seafood. But it's not simple. It's not really, but it looks that way and you just get that pop. And I think
0: that's the struggle. I don't know if you agree. Would you agree that the challenge that Noma has is because people are coming out, traveling to go there to eat they have to make the food incredibly difficult. Yeah. Right? Like, it's still like a muscle's a muscle, but when you see the dish, I was like, well, that probably took 20 hours yes. per dish, Yes, ultimately. And I don't know how to feel about that other than in awe. Yeah. Because, like, I would never want to attempt that kind of dish. It's just not in my wheelhouse. And I don't know if people appreciate how it is. And I also think Renee and his team have to do it because – they have the the burden of being groundbreaking and the best yeah. and so on and so forth. So it can't just be a muscle. It has to be a muscle that's reverse engineered and this, right. this, and That's this. right. And do you think people get all of this stuff?
1: Oh, it's impossible to get it all. It to me, you know, like it's funny you say that. Last time I was there. I appreciated this plant kingdom menu as an intellectual exercise and, and a gastronomic exercise, and certain dishes I thought were radically delicious, etc. But I think I missed a lot of the cultural context and the references. There was a Scandinavian journalist there whom I spoke with afterwards, and he was saying, "Well, this is a reference to this in Danish culture, and actually, this was a nod toward you know a certain gesture we'd have in our cooking." I missed that all that right. completely. I have no Scandinavian connection. So I never even after uh, five years of working on this book, I never even picked up a single word of Danish. So it's impossible. Um, So, you know, I think it's the kind of restaurant where it's operating on many levels. Very much. And I think it's very interesting when they decide to just achieve hardcore deliciousness. they, They sure fucking can. You know, like I remember going to Noma, the old Noma with my wife, Lauren, before it closed because they were going to build the new one. And it seemed like they decided to go out with this flourish, this kind of rapacious energy of just like, let's just make this crazy delicious. Like there was this big heap of perfect juicy langoustines just placed down in front of us that had been brushed with some like, you know, fermented sauce butter. And you just tore apart the langoustines with your hand. And it was just like primal and delicious and, and incredible. And And I thought, okay, it's cool that they can do this too. You know, like, it's not like every single dish is some kind of origami, like some sort of experiment you take apart. You know what I mean? So
0: the one thing that has changed over the years, I think, with, with Noma's menu is obviously the fermentation. And it's funny how that entered the sort of the culinary lexicon and the techniques of it. Cause umami is now way more present in its food in the mm-hmm. Food of Noma than ever before. Mm-hmm. But I look at that that time frame. Whether it was, I think, it was myself, magnet. There was like all of these chefs around the world had like discovered. Like, wait a second, mm. we need to learn this shit. Yeah, because we can unlock flavors that have that are just there that are like laying dormant.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you're a pioneer of that too. Did that come from contact with Renee, or did you guys sort of parallel each other? It was. Other?
0: It was really interesting. Is everyone did it differently, mm. but there was a lot of sharing of ideas for sure. Mm. And it's just fascinating to see. I remember thinking like, oh wait, how are they going to extract flavors? Um, and that was a thing. I think what, what people, do you mean? if you're going to cut yourself off to just literally like a hundred kilometer radius, like how do you extract more flavors? And that's what I always suggest when someone is learning how to create a menu. the The, the difficulty is actually cooking with everything. Mm. The hard thing that you need to learn how to do first and foremost is to cook with restraint, mm-hmm. and to learn how to push all of those flavors to the extremes. Mm -hmm. And that was the last frontier for them was to take Danish flavors and then to turn them into flavors of the world. Mm -hmm. And that had never been done before either. But I remember they have the Piso and right around that time, I, I think someone should write an article about this. There were probably a handful of chefs simultaneously because we were actually, I think, all friends too. I don't know how it was being like cross germinated, but yeah. everyone was fermenting stuff and we all had labs and we we're all doing this. Yes, and I it was, uh, it. Yeah. I think very fondly about those times because it was like, we all knew that this was the next level Yeah, and we were all right.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And Last I, time I was there, with David Zilber from the fermentation lab had a big jug, you know, like one of these jars of uh, garum being made with wild boar pancreas.
0: Yeah, they went further on the garum front, and I think— What
1: is it about the pancreas that you need? Like, I mean, like—and it has to be from a wild boar. You, you kind of lose—I mean, obviously, I don't have the knowledge to understand what it is about that particular organ or gland that— I don't know, because—
0: I think they're the at the forefront of garum making. Yeah. <laughs> they really
1: are. Should we explain for the audience what a garum is or do they all know? They'll they'll Google it. Oh yeah, Google it. Yeah. <laughs> uh
0: but it's similar to like a fish. It's umami water. Um, I don't know. Like, what do you think the secret sauce to Noma is? Why has it worked? Besides obviously Rene. What is it that has captured the imagination and ultimately changed? dining
1: well i think the secret sauce is how they make you feel when you're there the food is delicious the food is like nothing you've ever seen or tasted but it's going to be more than that when i was writing this book hungry i was tortured of course because we have to be tortured but th- that was i really was i, I read some dark places where i thought i was going to give the money back i was just not going to finish the book after years hanging out with renee these trips to mexico and norway and australia I couldn't figure it out, right? And what finally cracked open the safe for me was realizing that it was a cult narrative, that Renee is essentially a benevolent cult leader. (laughs) And when I did that, and I realized I'd been recruited by a cult, that it was like Wild Wild Country on on Netflix, then I, I knew exactly how to write it. You know, there's a sense when you're at NOMA of mission, and it's kind of intoxicating to be around these people who have this sense of mission and focus. And They make you feel great. It's a certain form of hospitality, but it's more than that. They, you, you get the sense that this is, it's almost like they have some kind of spiritual mission or artistic mission. I mean, when I talk about this with people, they think I'm nuts. You know, Pete Wells is always saying that I sound like uh, Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now. You know, he's <laughs> like, the man is a god. You don't understand. He can do anything. Uh, I, know, I know how nuts, I, to, the, to your audience, like, I know I sound crazy, but you've had contact for years with Noma. You know what I mean. I do. And
0: actually, there's something magical about it. And I've seen, you know, many of my team go and stage there. And I've said this before. I think that people are copying the wrong thing that they think is the secret sauce.
1: What are they copying?
0: And the same shit that people got
1: wrong when they staged at elbow. Yeah. They're and, copying the science or whatever.
0: They think that it's something that is going to, like, Enter them through osmosis. Yeah. Just by being there. Right. Sure. Um, Interesting. And, you know, Renee said this too. It's like, you know, the reason he was working the line at WE is because he worked his ass off. Mm-hmm. And ultimately that is the secret sauce to me is the ethos of hard mm-hmm. work and organization and mm-hmm. camaraderie. Mm-hmm. It's at a level that has... I've never seen before, maybe mm-hmm. in some kitchens in, say, Japan, Yes, but their ability to create a like, uni mind mm-hmm. amongst the team, which mm-hmm. I could see as a cult, but I think it really is highly effective communication of doing your job and mm-hmm. why your job is so important. And I don't know how it always works, but I've seen so many different teams and configurations of NOMA. And that, to me, has always been the thing that people never actually learn: is that it has nothing to do with anything other than how hard are you willing to work?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And what are you willing to put up with, too? Like, like in terms of in terms of uh, the intensity of the labor and yeah, the and, demands
0: and know? Renee and like you're just not going to be Renee. <laughs> I mean, Renee is is just a very different person. And you very mean different-
1: like a a, a cook. Thinking that you know I could be Renee, what do you mean by that
0: He is a prodigiously talented cook, yeah, he is smarter than most people. He is incredibly articulate and charismatic, but it's also just his mind that is the most important aspect of it, yeah. and people need to learn how to think, and
1: it's a fool's errand to try and copy him. It's the same as you know in 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 music and film, and so many you don't try to copy Wes Anderson movies. All these people tried to copy Bob Dylan and became like little junior Bob Dylans and went nowhere, you know. There are certain, there are certain forces in all different realms of culture who have gifts and they have vision and, and to copy them is ridiculous. But you can, a takeaway could be like the liberation that they hand to you in terms of, the, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of creativity. But that's what I I think people try to copy that, is they think that they can
0: copy it. And I think that's the folly.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: And because it is intoxicating, to see him literally do things. And I've I've done many things with him. Yeah. A lot of different dinners. You know, recently I remember us in, um, oh my God, where were we? Austria. And we had to set up this dinner all across this farmstead. Really? And he was cooking with Gabriel Camara and uh, I can't remember who else. It was like four other chefs. And um, out of nothing, he created basically a five-seat Omokas restaurant with Austrian ingredients where there was someone greeting you at the door, obviously taking his inspiration from Japan. And he took this barn, and obviously the barn looked Japanese, even though it was Austrian. And the way it was set up, and everyone was eating on these giant leaves, and I think it was like... I can't even remember the dish. That wasn't the point. It was the fact that he could amuse his imagination and get everyone to see something that was like, it was there. It just had to be seen. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I remember actually looking at this and I was like, fuck you, Renee!" Like (laughs) like how many times I felt that because he has the ability to see things that people don't. And I think that's the true gift of Renee. is Mm. he- is relentless until you can find a way to put the ingredients together. And it's also the space and the vibe and all of that. Like, uh, it's weird. Mm. It's just very weird that, that he has that gift that I've never seen anyone else have. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Indochino. I hate getting dressed up guys, mainly because I can't find anything that really fits me well. And quite frankly, that's one reason why I just don't go to formal events or any kind of place where I have to get dressed up in a suit and tie. But Indochino makes suits and shirts to my exact measurements for an unparalleled fit and comfort. And I love the wide selection of high quality fabrics and colors. Not to mention the option to personalize the details, including your lapel, lining, pockets, and buttons. The process is easy. Just visit a stylist at one of their 40 showrooms in North America and have them take your measurements or measure at home yourself and shop online at indochino.com. Then submit your measurements with your design choices and relax while your suit gets professionally tailored. And a professionally tailored, custom-made suit is just a game changer. It makes it feel so much better and tolerable, quite frankly. In fact, I should just start wearing suits more often because of it. This week, my listeners can get Any premium Indochino suit for just $369 at Indochino.com when entering Chang at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, shipping is free. Again, that's Indochino.com, promo code Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for any premium suit for just $369 and free shipping. Incredible deal for a premium made-to-measure suit. Once you go custom, you don't go back. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Safe. Do you know that only one in five homes have home security? Maybe because most companies really don't make it easy. That's why SimpliSafe is my top choice, hands down. Safe protects every door and window and room with 24-7 professional monitoring. And they make it easy on you. There's no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. Prices are always fair and honest. In fact, around-the-clock monitoring is just $15 a month. But the thing that makes Simply Safe stand out is their video verification technology. When other home security systems are triggered, police often assume it's a false alarm and the call goes to the bottom of the list, but not with Simply Safe. Using their video verification technology, they are able to visually confirm that the break-in is actually happening, allowing police to get to the scene three and a half times faster. Visit SimplySafe.com slash chang to get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. And you can sleep better knowing that Simply Safe is protecting you and your family. Now be sure you go to SimplySafe.com slash Chang so they know our show sent you. That's SimplySafe.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. And now back to the show.
1: You're quite driven, we know that. Renee is quite driven, and you're, you're close friends. Have you talked about that? Where does this oh, yeah. demonic yeah. same? That's say they're the drug, same. That's why they're wives best, say, our wives are is, best
0: friends, because they have, to, <laughs> they have to support each other for idiots like ourselves. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Where does it come from? Do you have a similar route in terms of that drive?
0: I think the one thing I can always relate to Renee is that even though it was different circumstances, I think what gets missed by Renee is the fact that while he's half Danish, he's also half Macedonian. Absolutely. And that is at the core of a lot of it, who he is. Absolutely. And he
1: is... So many people don't know that.
0: Right, that he's the shortest Dane in Denmark. <laughs> um,
1: well, they don't know that he was raised with his father reading the Koran to him yeah. by his bedside, you know, that his, his, his father was a devout Muslim mm. um, when he, when he passed away uh, and, a, you know, and a little And I think that, ago. that,
0: to me, has always been the story of how Rene could be Rene at Noma, because... Uh, I think in,
1: in Danish society, from what I know, when he was growing up, he was, he felt like an outsider. Mm-hmm. He dealt with a lot of bigotry, he, you know. And isn't that so often the case? Like, he's driven by this desire to leave his imprint on this city, and he has, irrevocably. He's completely changed Copenhagen and Denmark itself in terms of how we view it as a culinary... Destination. I mean, that's really all come from him. Because and, and it could
0: only have come from him, right. I think. yeah. Um, and that is, to me, always the central story of Renee. And I'd love to hear if you agree or not, is you could only change Danish food if you were not of Denmark. You oh, are absolutely. one foot in and one foot out. And it's almost like I have to appropriate Danish food. But if I was 100% Danish and accepted by Denmark, I can't. Because why would I ever try to change it?
1: Exactly. By the way, that's my 13-year-old son yawning in the background for the audience. (laughs) No, you don't have to apologize. It's fine. Um, I point out in the book that everyone has put undue attention on the Nordic part of New Nordic cuisine. It's really the new that's important. He essentially came to this idea that you could hit reset and start kind of tabula rasa what Nordic cooking was if you looked at the landscape differently and you interpreted it differently, interpreted what comes out of the farms and the beaches and the air through fermentation and everything. Um, I've had some dishes here and there that seemed like they were linked to what we think of as Danish culture, like a pastry or the bread. Or
0: It was more Danish in Scandinavian in the earlier years. Yeah,
1: I would imagine. Yeah. It seems less and less Danish and more and more Worldly, global yeah. and even kind of like from another planet. Mm-hmm. You know, like things you've never seen at all. But yeah, I, I think, you know, Denmark is, for the most part, a very traditional culture. And um, there seemed to be no impetus to change their gastronomic culture without an outsider's perspective. So that's what he's accomplished. And, I, you know, you remember that, like, five years ago, there were a lot of sort of new Nordic restaurants in New York. Everywhere,
0: all around the world, Australia, you name Yeah. It.
1: So weird. Because his... It's, it's like, how do you, you can't actually export that. I mean, you could export the idea of foraging from the landscape or fermentation, et cetera, but you, you can't actually just recreate new Nordic cuisine elsewhere. And like, that's just, what
0: I mean. People are copying the wrong thing. It's
1: so dumb. Like just, just using uh, like sea buckthorn in a menu in New York or something. Like why? It has nothing to do with New York. Nothing. Nothing. So you, you missed the message. You misinterpreted what the credo was so.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. That's
1: not to say that some of those restaurants were not great. I mean, when, when Mads Refson was at Acme, I thought Acme was amazing. Still good. I, I always liked Asuka. Uh, Frederick Bersalius, who is from Sweden, is an incredible cook. But uh, a lot of them have fallen away. You know, I remember there was an attempt to do an Icelandic restaurant in the Lower East Side at one point. That lasted a few months.
0: Do you feel that the whole change, right? A lot of this I mean, the precursor whether people realize or not, Ferran Andre was the first chef to actually kill his menu every year and to spend six months to create a new menu. And for the longest time, I thought that was, and I think a lot of it was to prevent people from copying him. But wow. I know that he would sit in his office and just look at Flickr and see all the people that are copying him anyway. Would he really? He I've was super stores. aware of it, yeah. yeah. I'm highly aware of, of the imitation. And hey, can I tell
1: you something? Yeah. I travel around the country for Esquire magazine, as you know, looking for best new restaurants and trends and whatnot. There's a lot of people copying Momofuku. You're probably <laughs> aware of that. I've been to some restaurants. I walk in there. I'm like, really? These are the exact same pork buns, like the exact same duck treatment, et cetera. I, it's kind of astonishing sometimes. Yeah. We don't
0: talk about it too much. <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: I mean, I suppose it's flattering. Um, I sometimes feel a little taken aback and feel maybe like I squandered my time in in that particular case because, you know, I want the original article. I mean, I I, I wrote a piece recently for Esquire about how just fucking sick of burrata I am yeah. because when you travel, I mean, do we like burrata? Of course, it's delicious. It's mozzarella stuffed with cream. It's like a soup dumpling made out of mozzarella. It's But- Why do I travel to every city in the country for this magazine and see Burrata? Because it's easy. Yeah, it's easy. And it's like, basically, don't people just buy it and put it on a plate?
0: Well, yeah, that's easy. And they know it's a low-hand fruit, lowest common denominator. It's EDM, right? (laughs) And It's going to
1: sell. Put a leaf of basil on there, maybe a little balsamic, sell it. I don't blame them. I mean, restaurants are struggling to get by. If you know this is going to sell. I applaud that, but I, I'm just saying from the standpoint of creativity. Uh, I mean, what is a critic's role? A critic's role, in some cases, is just to point out the copycats.
0: Well, that's we we should get into this a little bit because it ties back into your book and Noma is, the, and what I wanted to add, get your opinion on is, and Barada's perfect uh, Trojan horse, I guess, is people put it on the menu because it's easy and customers like it, and there's no resistance through the creation process. It's something that you can open up. And put on a plate, as you say, with basil and a side of bread, and you're good to go. What Noma's done, and a lot of this was, the, was from the genesis of, I think, what Ferran did in his true legacy, was to kill your menu and to start from scratch yeah. and to embrace suffering.
1: Embrace suffering.
0: To literally just say, we're going to do the hardest goddamn thing possible. yeah. Whether that works or not, that's our North Star, is to embrace the fucking heart. And it's always amazing to me that people want, to have what Rene and all these restaurants of its ilk. But the, once they see how hard it is, whether they put burrata on the menu or not, they metaphorically are putting their own version of burrata on their menu because no one wants to work that hard yeah. and to sacrifice that yeah. much to get there.
1: Yeah, and operating in the realm of complete newness of tabula rasa all the time is one of the most difficult things any creative person can do. We all have these touch points of comfort and familiarity. I mean, I sometimes wonder, you tell me this. Renee is 41. You are? 41. 41. You're both born in 1977. Mm-hmm. I'm 52. I will tell you that what happens between 41 and 51 is a lot. Your consciousness shifts. I'm. I'm taking on all sorts of mad risks. I have babies and stuff, but I'm drawn to the newness. I am also drawn to comfort in a way that I... Maybe didn't used to be. It could perhaps happen to you and Renee as well. I wonder if there'll be a time, you know, 10 years from now where Renee's like, actually, let's hit reset again. And let's just make very, very comforting, delicious. Well, I think that's time. happening. That would be so interesting, you
0: know. And I'd argue, and I maybe have this conversation with Renee or not. That's what
1: I, I you think kind of know it should happen? turn into. Yeah.
0: Is just, we're a canteen. Yeah. And we're here to feed people. Yeah. And that might be the last possibility of doing something new and avant-garde is to do the thing you're not supposed to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just to swerve. I mean, you know, so the world's 50 best list, we all have to do our ritual uh, dismissal of the idiocy of the list, etc. So that's out of the way now. (laughs) Um, Noma was recently, you know, was out of contention for a few years because they were doing the pop-ups and they're creating the new Noma. They're back in contention this year, 2019. They hit number two on the list this kind of amazing comeback. I, I think that was the best possible outcome for Rene Rizepi because had they achieved number one, it's over. Like, then they graduated to this Hall of Fame. Then what? I well, mean...
0: He's already in the Hall of Fame, and um, I have a lot of... I have negative feelings about the top 50 not because of the obvious reasons. Um, I was concerned that... that was too perfect of a storyline.
1: If they won number one? No. No, number number two. two. Really? Yeah.
0: There's no question in my mind, and I've talked to Renee about this before, many times. And I'm thankful because I never have to, I don't give a fuck about being number one. And all of them, I mean, it's weird. Like every single chef that's won number one is a friend of mine or someone I've known personally. Yeah. And I don't want that. And (laughs) I think it puts pressure on that, you know, maybe if I had just had one restaurant and I focused on it, it would be a different story, but that doesn't interest me. My concern is, you know, Renee's so competitive that right. it's like he has to, it's gonna get number one again. There's just like no question in my mind. And listen, Moro Cola Greco, and I said this for years, is one of the fucking best chefs. That has ever been produced in this world. He's yeah. so goddamn gifted, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And Mirazor is a restaurant that is every deserving of it. Yes. But with the top 10, and I think in the top 50, top 10 is actually a pretty accurate list of the zeitgeist of food. I think <laughs> Rene and his team, they're going to get number
1: one again. Of course, and then what? That's the concern. Then, then the, the competitive factor has been removed.
0: I don't know, but I, I hope they just turn that into a community canteen.
1: Well, I I have this feeling that NOMA will become sort of like the Grateful Dead. You know, like it will endure in part because people have to keep going back to see, you know, the dead would go on stage. You never knew what would happen. It was different every time. And NOMA can continue to offer that to that experience, you know, so then it can kind of go beyond this number one, which is kind of an absurd application anyway, and and become sort of an, an experience that can endure for for decades, you know? I mean, I kept hearing, I was hearing about the wild game menu when I was back there and the first item on the menu was raven. Actual raven, dude. Like uh, the bird raven. And and I, I was like, is that code? And he's like, no, it's a raven. And I was like, oh my God. Now I'm kind of... It's art. I'm taking... <laughs> well, is Noma, it? Noma is
0: art now. <laughs> I mean, I guess in some ways it always has been, but it's very important what Noma's doing. And this is why I always wonder like, It's a good example of when people critics are trying to eat it. How do you judge something when you don't understand what you're eating? A lot of the
1: references. Well, yeah. I I mean, I have no idea how I judge Raven. You know, is this good Raven? Is bad Raven? And that's why. That's why (laughs) Raven's a little funky today. I mean, it's so
0: important that it's happening. Yeah. When when can you say that statement? I've never had this before. Is this good or is it bad? If I don't like it, is it prejudice and bias as to why I don't like it?
1: I yeah. I mean, I I think that like that's. The level at which those Noma dishes have—that's what they've reached now. They—they—they they, they, they can't be compared to anything. That's what I tell folks. It's like you don't. It's this is not like anyway. I'm nope. going into Dennis Hopper <laughs> mode again. I mean, okay. One question is: Can food be art? Yes. Now I believe it fundamentally. It you is. didn't used
0: to. No, because I was being a dumb bro. Yeah, I was like, because like that's what I was raised at. It's crap. Sure. It's like. It's just food, man. You know, and no, I actually feel that food can be both. And that's why food at its very best, when it's a meritocracy, when it is being executed at a level like this, it is a little bit of everything. It is a craft. It's an art. It's a business. It's food. It's all these things. And there's no other art form or medium that can be expressed this way. And it's also highly impermanent.
1: Yeah. But so is a lot of art. When you see a lot of- Performance art that is celebrated these days and you th- say, well, that is art, but a meal at Noma is not. Well, what's the difference?
0: I think the answer is pretty obvious. What is the answer?
1: I love obvious No answers. one's
0: ever given a shit about food and it's been so unimportant Yeah, that all we have done is carried on a legacy of previous generations, like understanding of food. Yeah. And we're at a reckoning right now where that is yeah. changing. Yeah. And Toby's generation is gonna look at it a completely different
1: way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's exciting. What do you feel? You're fifteen years in, essentially. Seventeen. Uh, Seventeen. 17 years in, yeah. In. Okay, yeah. What's happening Which is it's, crazy. A, a decade is ending. As a sort of student of pop culture, I find it interesting that decades are artificial constructions and yet they do seem to contain movements and ideas. The 60s, the 70s, the 80s. We do think of these as discrete periods of time with certain styles, music, fashion, et cetera. You know, we're seeing a decade about to end. What's happening in the food world from your vantage point?
0: Um,
1: I mean, I went over here wanting to ask you all this stuff. So I hope you don't mind.
0: And then I want to get back to your book, but- It's um, all right. I think we're coming to an end of dining that it's over. Fine dining? This generation, I think fine dining will exist in different ways and- I'm excited that uh, like Vespertine exists, for example, but I know that a lot of people may not appreciate it, but I yeah. think it's a wildly important restaurant. Do I want, we have this talk. Yeah. I don't want to eat there right. all the time, but I'm, I'm really happy that they're doing it because yeah. it allows everyone else to do what they want to do because mm-hmm. it's on the far end of the extreme and pushes the boundaries. And that's what I appreciate. But I think as a whole, you're seeing a generation of cooks and weirdly, I'm putting myself in that with, with a lot of these chefs that are in their 40s to 50s. I would say like maybe the cutoff is maybe your late 30s where you worked under the sort of brutal regime of, of the older guard. Yeah. And you have acquired technique and then you were able to sort of carve out a new way of doing something like Rene's done with – his food at Noma. And you've seen now a proliferation of narratives of chefs, whether it's Virgilio in Peru, you name it. Every region has their sort of like baseball team that they can root for. Yes, yes, yes. These stories have now been told. Yes. We're now primed for the sophomore slump. Don't you think? No, we are in it.
1: I I agree. See, because I think we've been through a decade of basically you and Renee and Enrique Olvera and Alex Atala and – and these incredible figures and voices who've changed the conversation about food, you're going to continue to do incredible work. That's indisputable. But I do think that I sense a shift in the conversation. Really,
0: You know what I mean? No, I talked to younger, younger chefs that are starting out. And the interesting thing is, and this is something that I took when uh, we did a series of dinners, uh, just talking to people that are in their mid-20s. They roundly agreed that a handful of chefs that were there that they can't do what we did. They can't. No, they don't because it's already been done. Yeah. So mm. again, it's, it's this weird, I look at now art and food, like art movements are going to mirror pretty much food movements where at a, at some point people stopped doing impressionism and they started doing abstract expressionism and then they started That's doing the pop. the thing, yeah. And we're now, I don't think it's, when I say it's going to end, it's not going to, be the rejuvenation of what's already happened. Mm -hmm. It's going to be something new. Right. And there's new stories that are going to be told. Absolutely. And I don't know exactly what they are. I have an idea. But people trying to open up a restaurant in the middle of nowhere, trying to get three Michelin stars, I think is over.
1: Yes. Um, There's also a sort of conversational fatigue about it, I think. You know what I mean? Maybe that's just us. but No,
0: it's true. And I, I think that a lot of these younger cooks don't want it. Yeah. Because i would ask you this. You've traveled America and internationally some. If you had to say the next wave of talent, the next generation of culinary voice, mm-hmm. what is that look like? Because every 10 years, as you say, I could go all the way back to the beginning of Nouveau Cuisine in the 50s and the Trois mm-hmm. Gros brothers, and then I go to mm-hmm. Michel Guérard, and that goes mm-hmm. to Bernard Wiseau and Alain Passard, to Pascal Rabault, to even Tatiana Levha today. Tatiana Leva today is literally the embodiment of all of those chefs. Mm-hmm. And she's not cooking Arpège food mm-hmm. or restaurants. She's doing a Filipino restaurant, and then she yeah. has her own sort of take on a Parisian bistro, which right. is like one of my favorite restaurants in the world, Le Servant. Yeah. She's never going to want to be a three Michelin star chef. Right. Right? And that should tell you something. It does. And what do you think that is? Like, I can't see the next decade. Mm-hmm. With the next generation being like, I have to kill the leadership that exists today.
1: I am privileged as a representative of Esquire magazine to get a very limited budget to travel around the country, right? There's a few of us left who do this. Jordana Rothman does a great job. Uh, Kush Bouchard has been doing it for Thrillist, Brett Martin for GQ, et cetera, but not many of us. Most critics are confined to the cities that they cover, you know, so- what I see in cities like Dallas, Pittsburgh, or Philadelphia is extremely exciting. I'll give you an example. I've talked about it before but I'm so excited about this place. I landed in Dallas, I post some picture of tacos or something. I'm in Dallas. Every time I do this in a city, I'm flooded on Instagram with recommendations. Here's the thing. I try not to be a snob. I listen to people. I don't live in Dallas. The people who live there and love food probably know more about it. And a bunch of people kept saying on my Instagram, just the DMs, go to Petra and the Beast. You're going to be blown away by this restaurant. Misty Norris is killing it. And I I kind of knew who Misty Norris was, but not, not I didn't, couldn't really remember her point of view, et cetera. So, but I trust this input, you know? So I, I kind of changed my schedule around, made a beeline for Petra and the Beast. It's in a converted gas station. Looks like something from Grapes of Wrath in East Dallas. I went at like three in the afternoon. It was empty. It was Misty Norris and a guy who worked in the kitchen. That was it. And I kind of came up and I was like, yeah, hi, how you doing? Uh, I think I'll have everything. You know, like I was, I didn't order absolutely everything, but pretty close. I ordered like eight things. And I was like, I won't finish it. Don't be offended. I just want to try things. Eventually I introduced myself. There was no point in being, you know, anonymous. It's kind of ridiculous. Everything was served in these little boats. Like you'd get chili cheese fries, but what was being served Amounted to radical experiments with fermentation, fire, foraging, completely her own vantage point. Okay, her background is Cajun and Persian. She's in Texas. She's clearly absorbed some of the ideas of Noma, some of the ideas even of Francis Mallman, but has catalyzed them in a completely different way. That's an expression of her own autobiography and her own soul, really. And I was moved. First of all, it was just fucking delicious. I couldn't stop eating everything. I mean, these pig's feet, like glazed, delicious pig's feet. I was like, okay, what's she doing here? Like, and salads with cheese curds and all, all sorts of unusual curveball ingredients. I knew instantly this would be an Esquire Best New Restaurant. But more than that, to answer your question long-windedly, I thought, this is the future. Which is a melding. All the ideas that young chefs have absorbed from the likes of you and Renee and Atala and Overa and I and Dominique Cren and but catalyzed into a new vision and a new place that can be extraordinarily casual. Like the decor, so to speak, in this restaurant was just like, you know, anime posters and cow skulls and stuff. And she's just, you know, cranking music on her phone. And she does a tasting menu, oddly enough, on Saturdays. I have not had it. I didn't I wouldn't didn't happen to be there on the weekend. Um we don't always know who the new voices are going to be. If we, if we did, we would be, you know, gifted with clairvoyance. We, you know, we don't, all I can tell you and you know, as a, as a student of, of culture, is that they will come, they will rise up, and they will fascinate us, and they will bewilder us sometimes. And they will come from directions we, we don't anticipate. I think that we're going to see these kind of revolutions in places like Dallas because it's more affordable. Correct. You can take risks. It's just that simple. You can't take these risks in New York anymore. You can't take these risks really in San Francisco, oddly enough, unless you're doing a very high-end three Michelin star tasting menu. I mean, we're in the midst of a revolution right now. Eduardo Jordan, Mashama Bailey, JJ Johnson, Kwame Amuwachi, Eric Williams at Virtue in Chicago. We're seeing an incredible movement of black chefs in America exploring the food of the African diaspora. This is, to me, the most compelling vision of food right now in our country, and also, by the way, I've eaten at all these places. They're incredible restaurants. They're just places you want to eat. So there's stories being told, there's philosophies being expressed, there's history being explored. But they're also just awesome restaurants that are not necessarily fancy in some off-putting way, you know. So
0: But is the expectation that they have to be a top 50 through mission star bullshit?
1: Well, this is one reason.: story. This is one reason why the 50, world's 50 best is cracked. I can solve this for them. They want more diversity? You could too. Stop just honoring tasting menus. It's that simple. Because tasting menus are representative of the kind of people who have the wherewithal to get investment for tasting menus, right? So it's self-fulfilling. Those are often white men, okay? That's the pattern. Those are the people who've been able to raise the funds. Break that pattern. It'd be much more exciting and much more true to the spirit of cooking. The Gray in Savannah, Georgia, to me, is one of the world's best restaurants. It's because of Mashama Bailey's incredible cooking and John O'Morisano, her partner, his, his approach to hospitality. It's because of the space, which is a formerly segregated bus terminal on MLK right there in Savannah. It's about the history, but it's just also a place you want to hang out. To me, it's if, I, if I'm anywhere near the Gray, I'm making a beeline for that place and eating there. That I want to go back factor is what makes a great restaurant, right? So Momofuku Ko is one of those restaurants. Momofuku Samba one of those restaurants. But so, you know, so is the Grace. So is June Baby in Seattle. So I think the world's 50 best people. You can hear my voice going away now.
0: But that it's everything needs to be recalibrated. So that's why I think that the next generation may not be seen by the current media landscape simply because they're looking in the wrong places.
1: And they're looking for the wrong kind of thing, you know? You've been saying this for, you know, we had a conversation, you and I, that really stuck with me. It was when I first got the Esquire job and I ran into you at the Chateau Chateau Marmont Marmont in, in LA. And you said, you know, just open your mind about what a great restaurant is and who owns it and who these people are behind it and what their mission is. I mean, it was like, I'm serious, dude. It stuck with me. It was really meaningful. You know, one of the restaurants I included last year uh, at the end of 2018 was Daria. It's a Filipino restaurant across the river from where we live in Nyack. Toby, my son, is nodding. He's been twice. We went to this place and I was like, I don't know what to say. I I mean, this is in Nyack, New York. It's a young couple just making the food they love. It's from their family. It's from their soul. Also Virad Hudson Valley Beer List. They have toys in the corner for kids to play with. It's super family-friendly. I couldn't... Ex- I just like... To me, this is one of the great new restaurants in, in America. It just is. God damn it. <laughs> you know, I'm allowed to do this. I'm including it. You know? Beautifully changed their lives, you know, which is a good thing because they're good people. But a lot of that honestly goes back to you as you're saying that. And my thinking, it doesn't just have to be... You know, I love Angler. Angler was my number one. I love... Atomics here in the city. I think JP and Elia are the future, okay? But you don't just have to honor those very well-funded, very luxurious restaurants. And look, my peers in food writing have have known that now for years. I mean, not new to that party. Um, I think the Bon Appetit list and GQs and uh, certainly Jordana Rothman and Food and & Wine, they're all rethinking the framework of that. Thank
0: you for that i mean i remember going on a rant i don't remember it being oh you've meaningful. gone on many rants <laughs> with me, but i actually
1: remember them i mean uh, you know i appreciate you like
0: actually making that happen in your lists before we go on let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors today's Day chang show is brought to you by sonos Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. They're experts in acoustics and engineering, even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. I said it before, I'll say it again, Sonos is just a game changer. I've had it for several years now, and wherever I've lived, I've been able to install it, and those that know me know I'm an absolute idiot in installing any kind of technology. It's just not something I'm good at. But Sonos is so simple to install that it's been just part of my life and how I listen to music, watch TV, because of the surround sound is fantastic, and I'm able to just swap whatever I'm doing. It's, it's fantastic, and even now, I'm playing all this baby music because my son wants to listen to it, and it's just so easy. It's sort of seamless, so I can't recommend it enough. Visit Sonos.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. I'm just going to be critical of all of the the food media right now. I think that they need to do more work. More work? Oh, of course. And and I'm not trying to say it's, it's, it's not laziness. It's just people are telling the same stories still. And the reason I bring this up is I've had Jerry Saltz and Roberta Smith on from the New York yeah. Times, respectively, and the New York Magazine. And I was like, maybe they should write restaurant
1: reviews. Yeah, maybe.
0: And we need different angles as to, as to how we're talking about things because we're still stuck in the antiquated paradigm of food journalism. And we can't see it because we're stuck in it.
1: I think the critic plays a role her best at his best when it's a role of making connections that the reader that the audience might not otherwise find right so critics who have that passion and are willing to work like that can serve a positive role as someone who grew up in los angeles i can tell you this is so true of jonathan gold and ruth reichel especially in the years pre-internet when i was a teenager and those critics helped introduce neighborhoods to each other. They helped Los Angeles evolve into itself in a weird way. But there way.
0: are plenty of websites and there's social media. Well, now,
1: I mean, but I'm saying that. But
0: now, so exactly, that's done now. But we still have the same way of writing about stuff. You know what I mean? And that's the thing. It's like I think it's changing change. though.
1: A lot of new voices are coming up. A lot of new voices. You know, my friend Stephen Satterfield. He runs this magazine called Whetstone out of the Bay Area. Uh, he's been contributing to Esquire some, he wrote an incredible piece about rum, you know, and people like Steven to me represent the future. They represent, uh, new vantage points and new, new ways of writing, new ways of thinking about food. Um, there are definitely people who are going to be left behind.
0: Um, I swear I wanted to get back to your book because your, your son. <laughs> How you holding up do? Toby? You spent five years on this book.
1: Yeah, more or less. I've, five years ago is when I met Rene. I wasn't originally thinking of doing a book. I did an article for T Magazine about hanging out in Mexico with Renee, And um, you know, he's, as you know, he's charismatic and captivating. He reached out to me essentially through somebody at Finon. And I almost said no and didn't meet with him. I was just not in a place where I wanted to hear about his new Nordic manifesto. And um we ended up meeting in in, in the meatpacking district, the West Village around there at the a coffee place. And uh, he was like, yeah, you, you you love tacos. You grew up in LA. We, you, you and I, we should go to Mexico. I was like, yeah, sure, man. Not going to happen. <laughs> you know, like what? Well, I'm going to go back to Sam Sifton and get the money. It's not going to happen, you know? Um, but that's very kind of you. That's a nice thought. Um, and, you know, he can be persistent, Rene Redzepi. He started <laughs> emailing, texting, very gently. What's up with Mexico? I was like... Nothing is up with Mexico. That's not going to happen, man. What are you, t- you know? ah. Eventually, it happened to me in an elevator with somebody from T Magazine, Whitney Vargas, who's an old, she's an old friend of mine from Details Magazine. I mentioned that Renee Redzepi had been talking about this trip through Mexico. And she said, we'll pay for it. You go, let's do it. Suddenly we're in Mexico. The, be- the book begins with me essentially passed out on a beach in Tulum. And that led to all sorts of things that were almost like little challenges, you know? Like Renee would text me, or there, an email would come through. It's like, the first time, you have a reservation at NOMA. I honestly do not remember asking for one. I don't even think I would have. It just blurped up on my Gmail. And I, was, and I kind of emailed or texted him, like, what is this? He's like, you know, the message I got back was like, there is a seat for you if you want to take it or leave it, you know. And it, as I recall it, it was in a matter of days. <laughs> you know, so it was almost <laughs> like this challenge. It was like, I've got children. I don't have a lot of money. Uh yeah, sure, let's do this. Let's get on a plane. I ended up going with a, a guy who was almost like just a random fellow employee from the New York Times. Readers of the book will will remember the name Grant Gold, who joined me at at NOMA, um, but uh, maybe not for the entire meal. I don't want to spoil it. Um, but then these challenges would occur. You know, Renee would say, you want to come to Sydney? None of this was for the New York Times, actually. Or I, occasionally, I would write something, but the a lot of the, I mean, every single time I made these trips to eat at Noma, it was on my own dime, every single time. Wow! So I, I became like a deadhead. I became obsessed with it, and I kept wanting to have the new experience, and I felt sort of levitated when I was there. You know, um, that sense of mission became sort of intoxicating to me. I don't remember when I thought it would be a book, but when you context- when you think of Rene Redzeppi as a cultural figure, you know, akin to a Muhammad Ali or a. Beyonce or Steve Jobs, somebody who moves the needle, and you think you have access to this person, and you have insights, you have unfiltered experiences on the road in a van, cooking. Huh, suddenly, wasn't trying to be opportunist. I really thought I wanted to chronicle this, particularly this moment in Renee's life and in Noma's life, where he was closing the original restaurant, building a new one, the pop up in Tulum, the pop up in Sydney, all these other projects he was undertaking. His father struggling with cancer. It just seemed like a very pivotal time in the man's life that would otherwise kind of be lost. So I started taking notes, you know. I don't even remember formally asking. I mean, I must have asked him at some point, would you be cool with my doing a book? And he just seemed just like, yeah, sure, come along. He never asked me to change anything. He, ne- he didn't seem to try to control the narrative. You know, he I, I, we, we went through fact-checking. I showed him the galleys. He didn't, you know... How did you edit this book? Because
0: it is a quick
1: read. Oh, yeah. It's a real quick read. It's
0: a very enjoyable read. Yeah, and it's supposed you,
1: to be. It's supposed to be something you can read on a plane or on a beach in a right. day or two. I hate boring books. Look, I'm just... Toby agrees with me on this. I'm just... For some reason, I have attention problems. Is that new to anyone out there? I mean, I, I have attention span issues. I'm really good at uh, flowing along with a book on, on a business trip or something. But... Um, you know, my life, like your life. So it's often jostled by deadlines and demands with the children, parenting duties, et cetera. So I wanted to write a kind of book that people can just pick up and it sails along. There's no introduction. I hate introductions in books. To me, that's like a message to the reader. Like, actually, first you have to like, it's like Shawshank Redemption. First, you have to chip through this wall if you want to get, no, no, the book just starts. Um, My goal is to try to get people who don't know much about NOMA, don't know much about Rene Redzepi, people who don't even know David Chang, to pick up this book and find that it speaks to them at some level. Because it's really about risk and reinvention, changing your life, creativity. It's supposed to be accessible to anyone who has an interest in those themes, right? And that's what I ask what the secret sauce is. Because...
0: I've seen so many people that know Rene stage and work for Rene come away with the wrong thing. Yeah. And I think what is actually inspirational about Rene, what you've captured in the book, is that it's just a shit ton of grit. Yeah. And having the balls of the dream, incredibly huge.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think people are surprised that he suffers so much in the book. I mean, my, my, like I said, my access was real. It was unfiltered. <laughs> When I eventually left the Times, my editors at Esquire gave me complete freedom to work on this book. I basically don't go into the office at Esquire. I've only been in like three times. Um, so I'd say, look, I got to go to Maridai. I got to go to Oaxaca, I got to go to Norway, to this fishing boat in the middle of winter. They're like, fine, just as long as you turn in your column from wherever you are, it's fine. Um, so, you know, in Mexico, in the in the in the last third of the book, he's where gets sick. He loses this major chunk of investment for Noma Mexico. The one plate at Noma, Mexico, as you know, was $600. You got a lot of heat from that. That was really justified criticism. But it's important to know the context of why that was. The original price was supposed to be like 200 250 Still a lot of money, but $600 is significantly more from an optics standpoint. Um, so I think you see his vulnerability. You see him struggling with these things, suffering to make Noma, Mexico come together. I hate to feed into that uh, mythology of this, the suffering male genius. Uh, I apologies in that regard, um, but I hope in fact it actually just humanizes him, I and it, you know, and that he, he comes off as more a person and not some kind of I mean, revered I've, superhero.
0: I, I again, like I know him. We spend a lot of time together, and I read it. I was like, this is, it's not suffering uh, of genius. I think it's burden of responsibility. Yeah and it's it's not a white male type of thing or danish type of thing i just mm. think that it is responsibility and rene wants to overdeliver on everyone's expectations and he that does. can be paralyzing
1: actually in a, in some ways the book is about his relationship with mexico and it's almost like a love affair with mexico he loves it <laughs> but mexico keeps kicking his ass like mexico <laughs> wins in this book you know and and you see through the the observations of alejandro ruiz Enrique Olvera, Roberto Solis, um, Rosio Sanchez, all sorts of people in the book who clarify the degree to which Rene will not win, <laughs> you know, when, he, when he's up against Mexico. Mexico will win. It's, it's beauty, it's rhythms, it's history. So that's sort of the drama implicit in it, mm. you know? I mean, it, it's, it's a weird book to explain to people who don't know our world, the food world, because they're like, so you wrote about this guy in, who's Danish? but he's like his family's from Macedonia but most of the book he's cooking in Mexico. Yes, that's it. Well that that sounds like a weird book. Well it is kind of a weird book, but um just give it give it 5 pages. See if you can read 5 7 pages if you're not swept away then, you know. It's a good read. I think it is a good read. I, I appreciate you saying that.
0: And uh, it's
1: not perfect. No book is, but I think I think it has um, the energy of the moment. Like I always love books like by Tom Wolfe. Joan Didion, books that kind of capture the energy of the 60s and the 70s. And I kind of wanted a book that people can look at even 20 years from now and get a glimpse of the energy of this moment, this moment that's defined in part by people like you and Renee and Enrique and and Rocio and Malcolm Livingston. And I think that um, it doesn't just describe that, it feels like Mm -hmm. it. And and, and
0: I think you've done a a wonderful job of giving people an insight as to this moment in time, right? Like it's hard for me to like separate myself from reading this stuff because like, I know all, like a lot of these things and yeah. it does put you in the room.
1: In the room. That's right. You know, and hearing some of the conversations that you wouldn't otherwise hear.
0: I think you did it a, a great service because you, you weren't trying to make it clickbait.
1: Oh yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, you,
0: the whole thing is what you have to understand and read, and this is like that's what's important is you got to understand that journey of of that whole Mexico trip. And
1: I think so. I think so. I probably um, hurt myself to some degree by putting so much poetry and well, song talk, lyrics can, and stuff. Can you talk? I'm about I'm just a that? weirdo. Uh, I mean, the you're, first you're lines of po- the book are in Italian. You're, you're you know, da- like Toby, your dad's a poet. <laughs>
0: If you had your choice would you not be a food critic and would you just make poetry and <clears throat> stuff.
1: You know when I first went to college I was 17 and I took poetry writing classes. It turns out, Dave, there's no money in it. It's very <laughs> it's very difficult to make it as a poet. Actually, I studied poetry writing and fiction writing. Here's the thing, I'm being honest. I don't I don't think I had a whole lot to say. I'm really a reader of poetry and an appreciator of of uh fiction and poetry, but I don't I don't know that At least at that stage of my life i had a whole lot to offer to the dialogue you know and the revelation to me in part through john mcphee of the new yorker who taught a writing class where i went to college was that i could excel flourish at writing about other people other people and their drive their demons their struggles that's the meat to me that's what i'm really interested in um for a long time it was musicians (laughs) filmmakers poets i wrote about but at a certain point you know, with, with the aid of Pete Wells, who was originally my editor at Details Magazine, I found that the most fascinating creative people of the moment were you guys, the chefs. And the most unfiltered in many ways. You guys will say anything. <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking, but <laughs> you don't get that from movie stars anymore, let me tell you. You get an hour in a hotel room. You guys get days, you know? So go where the access is. Go where the action is. Um, so what's next for you? I want to get healthy. I want to work out. I want to get in shape. I'm just being honest. I, I don't. I don't know that this food beat is an is an extraordinarily healthy endeavor. Um, I'm sure I'll do some more books, um, some more Esquire best new restaurants. Are you tired?
0: Don't you get tired of going out to eat? You have to. I'm sorry. I do. I can't. Im- I always wonder. I was like, how the fuck do they do this?
1: Yes and no. Like, let's say you're obsessed with film. You're obsessed with theater. You know, I knew kids growing up who were theater rats. They were obsessed with it. You know, I was that way about restaurants. I was as a little kid, I thought they were the coolest thing. And it could be everything from a taco truck to Michelle Richard's citrus on Melrose. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't about the fanciness or the luxury. It was about the theater of, of hospitality mm. and, and delicious food. Um, I do get weary of it when it's mediocre. That's the which is a lot, which is often. But when it's exhilarating, I mean, when I went to Atomex here in the city, I'm sick of tasting menus. I, don't, I didn't, wasn't particularly enthusiastic, except to the degree that I really admire Ellie and JP. I knew they had high standards. But oh my God, you've been there, yes? It's wonderful. It's extraordinary. Okay, so 10 minutes in, I didn't want to be anywhere else. I would go back to Atomix in a second. I would go back to Bernardin in a second. There are restaurants, I would go back to Sambar in a second. There's restaurants where I want to go back because they give me that exhilaration. There are a whole lot I don't want to go back to. But that's so, the thing like, know, that's is like, is it problem. getting
0: better or worse?
1: Both. Both. Yeah, it's getting better and it's getting worse. <laughs> there's Atomix's and then there's a whole lot of Barada. So, you know, that that's just really the gulf right there. There's Petra and the Beast and Atomix and Angler, and then there's 8 million Barada restaurants, um, you know, with wood-fired pizza and, you know, pasta with uni and all that. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, we'll get you out of here. Uh, good luck on your book tour. Thanks, Dave. I wish Thanks you for all the health.
1: Get healthy. And, I'm And uh,
0: excited to see what you're up to next. Uh, uh, is your top 10 list already out for this year?
1: Oh, no, it's at the end of the, end year. Of the year. Yeah, I'm in the middle So of look it.
0: forward to that. I'll, I'll, Thank I'll, you. And um, I mean, we'll talk to you again soon. But uh, buy the book read it it is a perfect as you say plain read that's how i yeah. finish my book and uh
1: you can read it fast yeah it but like it a good fast homework. it's like a good fast and it you like you feel good homework. yeah oh
0: <laughs> the book is called hungry and i'll give that an intro again too yeah thanks to Thank toby
1: for it. thanks Hanging for putting out. up with this toby
0: well that was my conversation with jeff gordon here Hopefully you buy his book. I think it's just a fantastic summary, and it's not just a summary. It's a great insight to one of the great minds of our generation, one of the greatest chefs of all time, Rene Redzepi, and the whole team of Noma. Um, really magical what they do, and to get Jeff's sort of journalistic take on what it was like to be a fly in the wall is just very, very interesting. And I cherish it because I think he nailed it. So thank you, Jeff. I want to get to an Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com question. You know, Mo asks I worked as a bookkeeper and pastry cook at Milk Bar in 2014. And I was so inspired that I started cooking and recently opened my own place in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, called Tamara Tea House. Depression, anxiety, and burnout, as discussed on your podcast, is a problem in this industry. And I'm so grateful you are creating a platform where such things can be discussed in the open. But I'm constantly racked with the fear that all my hard work and the sacrifices my parents made won't amount to anything. It was also disheartening to listen to some stories of chefs on your podcast who worked so hard, but their businesses still did not pan out. Still, my question is Does it ever get easier? Do you find doing business outside of NYC to be more sustainable? Will I be stuck being a line cook for the rest of my life if my restaurant fails? Do you ever regret going into this business? Man, you know, thank you for sharing that. It was a lot of courage to ask these things, and I will do my best to get to Tamra Teahouse in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and thank you for that question. It, it, it's uh, it's hard. And I, at the beginning of this podcast, I talked about the stupidity of cooking schools, and because, like, the, the attrition rate's so high. and. I believe the, the, the stat for restaurant owners is a failure of 99% within five years. That is staggering and insane. Um, you can really hurt your future economics and, and financial security by opening a restaurant. I mean, it's not your money, someone else's money. And it's a terrifying prospect. I've almost gone out of business several times it's a terrifying prospect. And I just, the fear consumes me and it consumes me so much, you know, consume me so much. And it traumatizes me so much that I swear to God every day, I still feel like it's all going to end. I really do. There's not a day that goes by that I don't have some kind of fear that something bad's going to happen. And I mean that that this business is something I love with all my heart and I hate with all my heart because it's such a struggle. And the people that deserve it the most don't get the recognition they deserve and vice versa. It's just like, it can break your will, especially if you're a small business owner doing everything on your own. My heart goes out to you because all you need is a break. And it's hard because I never want anyone to be a statistic. So you got to ask yourself, you just have to accept, hey, there's a 99% chance that I'm going to be a failure rate. What do I need to do to make sure I'm not one? How do I make sure I'm not a number? And that's when I think you got to figure out that you can't play it safe. You can't, if you're already going to fail, once you accept that failure, some things can be freeing. And that allows you to sort of impose your will on your own restaurant and be free from the shackles of trying to be whatever it needs, this restaurant needs to be or whatever you think it needs to be. So the best way I describe this, you know, is like, I don't even think about sometimes operating a restaurant. I want to make it look as unsexy and uncool as possible. So I imagine I operate sometimes a shoe store because you cannot separate the business aspect from the creative aspects because you can't do creative if you can't fucking pay the bills. So make sure you look with an entrepreneur lens as how you can operate a business from paying sales tax to being accounting, to paying accounts receivable and payable, to how you fucking pay everything. And it's, it's pretty simple, but incredibly complex to do. And what's hard about it is you just never have enough time in the day or help from people to get it done. So no, it doesn't get easier. In fact, what makes this job so fucking hard is when you experience success, it only gets more difficult. I always liken it to like a video game or Tetris, right? If you were playing Tetris or I've never played Fortnite or any of these fucking games, but I have played Tetris and I, in my younger days, I used to play it for hours on end trying to fucking get better, trying to win this thing. But the thing is, every time you level up, it gets harder. And that's the challenge. And you fail knowing you're going going—you're you, just going to fail every time. The success leads to failure because it gets more difficult. The blocks move faster and faster and faster. And ultimately, it gets to a point where you're not going to be able to do it. And that failure doesn't prevent me from not trying again. I do it again and again and again, knowing that the further I get in this game, the harder it's going to get. And if the Tetris game got easier, every time I beat a level the game got slower, the blocks moved slower, I would never play that fucking game because that's not how life works. Life works, I think, because shit gets harder. And the more successful you get in this business, which is already incredibly stupidly hard, what makes this absurdly dumb is that if you're one of the very few restaurants that can make it past one year, one year, two year, three year, four year, five, every year and every day after that gets harder and harder and harder. And I'm not trying to wax poetic about it, but the fact of the matter is you just got to accept it. And once you're free from that idea that it's hard, you're going to be able to come up with some perspective that you might be missing to make your business fantastic. And the other thing is just accepting that you could do everything possible and know that it still might fail. And that's a really tough pill to swallow because you could get a bad review from a critic that just doesn't understand what the fuck you're doing, or you could be too ahead of the curve or whatever. You could open up your business, then a manhole explodes outside and you're out, you're put out of business because of an act of God. You know, I think about it all the time with Hurricane Sandy in New York, like how that just altered the lives of so many people. It's not fair. I don't think it gets easier if you operate outside New York city. And I worry again about the opening of this podcast. What do you do if you fail in this business and you don't want to cook anymore? Cause if you spend enough time in this business, all you know how to do is to cook. And the older you get, the harder it is to cook because your body breaks down. I think about Roger Gurl, who is the chef owner of Arcade Bakery. And his laminated baguette is one of the great fucking culinary inventions I've ever tasted. And he was the head baker for Thomas Keller Restaurant Group. And he's closing down his shop in Tribeca because of rheumatoid arthritis. I have rheumatoid arthritis. It hurts like a motherfucker. And I don't even fucking cook anymore. And I can't imagine being a baker and working with your hands and your back and your hips and your knees. And it's a successful bakery. It's just as fucking hard, man. And the fact that it has to close breaks my fucking heart. And I wonder, what do you do if you can't do it anymore? I don't have an answer. I'm really trying hard, Yuna, to figure that out. You know, Yuna... It's not easy. I don't have the answers. All I know is I got to keep pushing that boulder up the hill. I did a podcast with Mike Schur last week. I highly encourage you to listen to it because I think he's got some great insight. There's a moment when you realize that maybe what's preventing you from being successful is yourself. And there's no guarantee that even if you come to that realization, you will be successful. I don't really have anything encouraging other than I wish you the best. If there's any way I can help out, I'm happy to. I'm sorry I haven't heard about your restaurant before, but tomorrow Tea House, I will try to get there. And the only thing I can tell you is you got to have grit. And I think you got to hope for a better day. And that's, that hope is not hope. You got to work for that fucking thing. And there were so many days that we just narrowly escaped complete closure of our business. And every time I feel like we escaped death. And each and every time I'm scarred from that incident, but it gives me sort of energy to try more bold things to realize that, hey, this is an absurdly stupid thing that we're doing, so why play it safe? You know what I mean? The reason why I'm struggling to give you an answer, you know, is I don't have an answer. Do I regret going to this business? Yeah, sometimes I do. With all the success we've had, because it's hard when people don't care enough it's hard to just do this day in, day out. And I am blessed. And there were many, many moments when we first opened up Momofuku where I was like, nope, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. I can't believe we're fucking doing this. Which is why for a long time, I just imagined we operate a shoe store. Anyway, Yuna, I'm going to hope the best for you. And hopefully this answered your question in some way or fashion. Um... Taichi Nakashima asks, I just listened to your podcast with Hassan Minaj, and the part where you talk about how you pronounce your names really resonated with me. I grew up with a predominantly white environment and always figured that I'd probably have to correct the pronunciation of my name whenever I met someone new. But your show got me wondering, how do you feel about pronouncing foods correctly in your restaurants and elsewhere? Part of me feels like a bit of a douche if and when I call it out in conversation, but I still try to pronounce them correctly when I know how. I think general attitudes towards this have changed in recent years. Having Japanese heritage, for years, people would call sake, sake. And it drove me nuts. At least they're still trying to get it right now. Taichi Nakashima, thank you for sending that in. And uh, the reason when Hassan Minaj was talking about how to pronounce his name properly, and I hopefully I just pronounced it right, was, you know, I don't even use my Korean name. I never use it. Because I I've been scarred as a kid. My Korean name is Sokho, but imagine how American kids in Virginia would spell it or pronounce it, Sukho, right? Sokho sounds to American kid growing up in the early '80s as S-U-C-K-H-O, Sukho. My brother's Junho, and my my older brother's Youngho. Ho is the Korean family suffix for my family, for at least the brothers that I have. It's Korean, but all of a sudden, because I'm in America, it sounds incredibly bad. So of course I'm scored. I never want to be called by my middle name because no one's ever going to pronounce it Soko. It's always going to be spelled or pronounced sukho. That sucks. No pun intended. When I'm Korean, no problem. Soko, Soko, Chang Soko, no problem. But in America, I don't still have the courage to use my Korean name. And I have a lot of feelings about that because I have a lot of sort of self-loathing about being Korean still. And when it comes to sort of words that are foreign to Americans, particularly food, I, I don't know. I think, Taichi, I understand exactly what you're saying. I would also get upset if someone said, Saki. It's a very loaded question, man. And I thought it was going to be a lot easier to answer. But it's definitely triggered a lot of shit in me. Because I guess my, my answer to your question is, I don't know if you, yes, you can correct him. But I think the only way this changes is time if you think about all the sort of racial implications attached to food that are finally changing, whether it's ethnic food has to be cheap to, you know, noodles have to be fucking only Asian and pasta can be Italian and all this other bullshit and MSG, you name it. These things are changing. And if someone doesn't know how to pronounce something in Japanese, I've butchered Japanese word, but I, I'm trying my best. And one thing is, is like, I do think that given time, if this answers your question properly, with enough exposure, people will begin to answer or respond with the right pronunciation and also the right etiquette. You know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about some jackass douchebags in a sushi restaurant just ruining the experience because they thought it was like eating a, like, a, like a cheap, Takeout spot when it wasn't, and that to me that is more infuriating. Is just not paying respect. So I think the answer to your question, Taiichi, is this: I think it's okay to mispronounce something if you're trying to be respectful. If you're being sort of blasé and you don't give a fuck about whatever you're talking about or eating, then I think that can be problematic, and I understand why. But the whole idea of how you pronounce your names and like finding your identity in your culture and white America, for the most part, that's a tough transition. And I don't want to say I feel your pain, but I can certainly empathize. I don't know if I answered your question, Taiichi, but it definitely caused me to pause and to think. And I don't know if I'm the right person to answer any of this shit. Anyway, uh, I've talked for way too much. It was a long podcast and a long intro and a long outro. I'll let you guys go. Thank you for listening. Thank you again to Jeff Gordonier. And thank you to Yuna Mo and Taichi Nakashima. Check out uh, Tamra Tea House in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Give us five stars however you rate this podcast. iTunes, leave us some good reviews. Thank you, guys. Stay tuned next week.